Let's pray together. Father, we pray now that you would continue to give us a glimpse of your transcendent nature and how that relates to the coming of your son. We thank you for Jesus. We worship him today. And we pray that you would help us to see him more clearly. Amen. Andy Williams says that Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year. I wonder if you agree. For some of us, uh, we think, of course, Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year. It's an opportunity for us to think about the incredible blessings that we have in our life that are before us even right now. And an opportunity for us to look toward the future and hope of what is to come. Some of us here today say, life is pretty good. I mean, I have health, I have my family, I have my needs being met, and I have the Lord. I anticipate a phenomenal Christmas season and a great Christmas celebration. Others of us here today look at life a little differently. We say, life is not fair. Life is too hard. And instead of a great celebration at Christmas, we expect more difficulty or even more pain. And then there's some of us who are just fairly cynical about the whole thing altogether. I mean, the society that goes to and fro with the waves of culture bashing up against the seashore, the consumerism of Christmas, the relatives that we see that we may not like so much, And we think to ourselves, is there any hope for this world? For some of us, we sing joy to the world with great gladness. And for others of us, we think, how can we possibly sing tidings of comfort and joy? (laughs) And for those, maybe, who struggle at Christmas, you are much closer to where the nation of Israel was during one of the greatest Christmas prophecies that we have. Israel, in the middle of Isaiah's days, needed to hear a message of hope. (laughs) Because life as they saw it was not looking so good. And so I want to ask you to open your Bible with me to Isaiah chapter 42. And let me describe what's going on in the middle of this section of the Bible for you. Isaiah 42 was directed toward God's people, Israel, during the Babylonian exile. They were under the reign of a foreign king named Cyrus. The people were dominated by another nation. They were enslaved by another king. And as they looked at the world around them, they were asking questions like, Is there any hope? Why is God so far away? How is God going to make all of this right? Now, we can't imagine what it's like to be enslaved in exile in another nation under the rule of a foreign king. But you can relate to the questions that are asked in such a dynamic. Because when the situation in the world around us seems to be out of control we seem to ask similar types of questions, don't we? Why is God so far away from my situation? 
how is God going to make all of this right? Is there any hope? And in Isaiah chapter 42, we have an answer. And the answer is Jesus. Isaiah 42 is a prophecy about the coming of Jesus that we celebrate every year at Christmas. And the description of what he does and how he does it provides a great source of encouragement to us, number one. But it helps us to step back and look at the big picture of what God is doing in the world. And we see Christmas in a little different light. And so I want to ask you, if you've yet to open your Bible, please turn to page 602 and follow with me as I read Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 9. This is what God says. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until... He has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light to the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, The former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. How is God going to make this all right? Well, from the very beginning in verse 1, we get the sense that in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of a situation that seems to be out of control, that God has his man for the job. It says in verse 1 that he upholds him, that he chose him for this work, that his soul delights in him, and that he has put his spirit upon him. He is talking about his son, Jesus. The eternal son of God is commissioned by the eternal father and empowered for this work by the eternal Holy Spirit. And so it's not surprising when you think that God says that his soul delights in him, that when Jesus comes and when he grows and when his public ministry begins, he stands on the bank of the Jordan River waiting to be baptized by John the Baptist as an example for all to see. And in that moment, it says that the Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove. And a voice from heaven confidently declared, 
this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The support of the Father, the empowerment of the Spirit for a specific mission. But what is that mission? There's a lot of different ways that we can describe the mission of Jesus in the world. I'm sure if I asked five of you, you would all give five different answers that were fairly close to each other. But Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, tells us this mission. And the mission is that he will bring forth justice to the nations. Justice. It's something that so many want and yet seems so elusive to many of us. And the idea of justice is somewhat of a loaded term today, isn't it? We have social justice. We have justice warriors. We have Supreme Court justices. And they all seem to have attached to them battles of ideology or political connotation. Justice need not be so controversial, and yet in our day it tends to be. One dictionary defines justice as morally correct and fair. Another dictionary defines it as conforming to what is true. That is justice, to conform to what is true. But yet in our time today, justice has all kinds of conflict around it because it's a fluid idea. It's a fluid idea because truth in our culture seems to be a moving target, doesn't it? If we're supposed to conform to truth, if that's the idea of justice, but truth has become so individualized, how can we think that there's an even standard of justice across all people? Or to put it another way, if morality is simply in the eye of the beholder, but justice is something that's morally correct, then doesn't it seem impossible to have any sort of agreement on what justice truly is? Fear not. Because no matter how humanity attempts to manipulate truth, no matter how much humanity attempts to redefine morality into the eye of the beholder or based on your personal experience, there is one who sees very clearly. There is one who can tell the difference. There is one who sets the objective, irrefutable standard for justice. God. And so to say that Jesus comes to bring forth justice to the nations is to say that Jesus comes to align us to what is true, to conform us to what is right. To say that Jesus ultimately brings justice is to say that Jesus ultimately aligns our thinking and our practices to what is true. And what is true? God. That's what it means to bring forth justice. Life in line to God. 
What a thought. Across the board, for all people. What a thought. Sinful behavior dealt with. Abuse dealt with. Sex trafficking dealt with. Manipulation dealt with. Financial impropriety dealt with. Grief dealt with. Serial deception dealt with. Justice in line with God. But notice the manner in which this servant Jesus pursues justice. It says in verses 2 through 4, three different descriptions of the manner in which he pursues it. Verse 2 points to the fact that he does not draw attention to himself. Look with me, it says, He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. That is to say that he will not go about drawing attention to himself instead of his purpose. Nor will he cause a great uproar for things that are not true. In other words, he will not be a typical politician. I know today, we don't want to paint with too broad of a brushstroke, but today it is so hard to figure out those who take up a cause, engage in the political process, or have a variety of issues that they want to champion, it's so difficult to know if the motives are pure. It is so difficult to know if the, in the multimedia-based society that we're in, if, if the images that you see have been manipulated to lead you down the path of their foregone conclusion. But this servant will not engage in such tactics. Notice the manner in which he pursues justice. Verse 3 tells us that he will not crush those who are tender or vulnerable. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. I absolutely love the imagery of gentleness here. Because to bring forth justice, one needs to be strong. But to be strong does not mean to be harsh. (laughs) To be strong does not mean to be reckless. We're accustomed to thinking that strength is the opposite of gentleness, of tenderness, of softness. Yet that's not always true. In World War I, British fighter pilots made an amazing discovery. They discovered that thick layers of soft, gentle silk were better at stopping low-velocity shrapnel than the hard, cold metal of their helmets. And so they wound silk around their heads and then put leather riding caps over it to hold it on there. Scientists still aren't exactly sure what it is that gives silk its strength, but it's true that in certain situations, soft, gentle, tender silk can prove stronger than cold, hard metal. (laughs) Jesus showed that the same holds to be true for human character. 
some people try to make themselves impenetrable or to display a level of leadership or strength to the people around them that is cold and hard and direct. But Jesus shows that gentleness, a heart that's soft toward others, and tenderness are in fact qualities of great, great strength. And so some of you are here today and you feel like a bruised reed. A reed that has been battered back and forth by the difficulties in life. Some of those difficulties might be of no fault of your own. Some of them may be the consequences of your own poor choices. But no matter how you got to this point, you feel like that reed that if it has been bent just one more time, you will break in two. Have faith in this Savior because he is kind toward you. Some of you might feel like a smoldering wick that is barely holding the flame. Perhaps it's your struggle with sin that leaves you feeling incredibly discouraged. Or maybe you look at the plight of the loved ones around you and say, this is just not fair. Or maybe your faith in God holds on by but a few flickers of the flame as you look at the world around you and you just can't seem to make sense of what's going on. And so you say in the quiet of your heart or the voice in your mind, God, why are you so far away? When are you going to sort all of this out? And you doubt. And you struggle. And if that is you, have faith in this Savior. Because He is gentle with those in such a vulnerable position. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench. What a wonderful picture of the tenderness of the Lord. His strength is displayed in this tenderness with us. But not only is it displayed in this way, his strength is also displayed... And that the negative also implies the positive. Not only is he able to tenderly and gently handle the bruised reed, but he is also able to fortify it with strength. Not only does he protect the smoldering wick, but he is able to fan it back into flame again. The Savior not only preserves life, but he restores life and gives new life and gives it to the full. And so when Jesus is on earth and he is going from place to place and people are trying to figure out who he is and what he is doing and they're trying to make sense of the world around them and how he fits with God, he says to them plainly so. He says, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy, John 10.10. But I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. he does this in the pursuit of God's justice. 
Look at the third manner in which he pursues this justice. You see it in verse 4. We see that he will, he will see this through to the end. Verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he's established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. There's no term limit for this one who establishes justice. There's no discouragement that will cause him to abandon the role. There's no amount of weariness or the notion to give up along the way. The eternal purposes of God are met with the resolve of this Savior. And you've Notice the repetition by now, haven't you? Let me point it out to you. Verse 1, he will bring forth justice to the nations. Verse 3, he will faithfully bring forth justice. Verse 4, he will not grow discouraged until he has established justice. Justice, the alignment of our actions to the person of God. True justice. And so as we look at the second half of the passage, in verses 5 through 9, we see that a reinforcement occurs of these first couple of verses. Isaiah 42 is one of the servant songs, they're called. And the servant songs often have a common feature. They have a head and a tail. (laughs) And the tail is there to reemphasize or support the head. And that's where we begin the second half in verse 5. That the foundation for this mission of the Savior is God himself, the creator and the giver of life. And when he says, thus says God the Lord in verse 5, the word, the name used for God is Ha'el in Hebrew, which means he who is indeed the transcendent God. (laughs) There's an emphasis in there. He's not just the transcendent God. He who is indeed the transcendent God. And to be transcendent, of course, means to be boundless. To be without restriction. And so if you summarize verse 5, you say, He who is indeed the transcendent God, He's the one who created the heavens, spread out the earth, breathed life, and gave the Spirit to people. To create, to spread, to breathe, all of these describe the unchanging relationship that God has with His created world. And so you see, the God who created is not far off, even though it might feel that way to you sometimes, He's not indifferent to those who he has created. He continues to create and stretch and spread and breathe life. And the raising up of the Savior and the establishment of justice is precisely because he is near. And because he loves his creation. And so look with me at what this servant does. In verses 6 and 7, we've seen that the servant establishes justice in a strong yet tender disposition. That he's commissioned under the transcendent God because of his love. But now we see what it is that he does to establish this justice. It says in verse 6 that he is a covenant for the people. A promise of God. 
And so nearing the end of his death, Jesus sits with his disciples and he's describing to them the death that is about to happen and he takes the cup and he says, take of it, drink all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant. The promise of God, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Or Hebrews 9.15, the writer describes that Jesus is therefore the mediator of a new covenant, a new promise that God makes, so that those who are called may receive their promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This covenant establishes God's justice. Secondly, we see that he is a light for the nations. Look at the second part of verse 6. That this servant would be that light. And so John 1, chapter, verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then we see in verse 7 that he brings out prisoners from the dungeon. That's what this servant does. And so Luke 4.18, Jesus in his early in his public ministry says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. Friends, when you take these things together, this is the gospel. This is the good news of how we are realigned with God. This is the good news of what all humanity will have to reckon with when it comes to God's justice. That his son is the light in the darkness who promises to forgive us sins by the shedding of his blood. And he sets us free from the dungeon of sin and death that we were in. This is divine justice. This is how people are realigned to God. And with the coming of the servant Savior that we celebrate at Christmas, all of the world will have to reckon with this type of realignment. And they will have to do so because God is supreme. I am the Lord, verse 8. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. All of creation will experience his justice. All creation will be aligned to him. And so you realize that the coming celebration of Christmas is not just the coming of a miraculous baby in a manger. Nor is it merely the coming of the Son of God to earth as a wonderful example for us. Nor is it only the possibility of the forgiveness of sins, as wonderful as those three things are. Friends, have faith in this Christmas child, Jesus, the Son of God, because his coming marks something that is much 
much bigger than you and me and our experiences. His coming, the coming of this Savior, marks the beginning of God's justice. All people, for all time, will be aligned to him. (laughs) All creation will be aligned to him. It began with his coming, and it will be complete with his second coming. And because of that, we can have hope. We can say confidently that Jesus is the hope of the world because through him people are aligned to God. We hope in Jesus and Jesus alone because through him the world is aligned back to God. And so we come to Christmas with hope, with faith, with joy, with anticipation because what we experience right now will not always be. God is doing something, even now, much bigger than you through his son. And if you put your faith in him, then you're already beginning to experience it. And you will experience it in its totality when he comes again. And so let Christmas, let Christmas allow you to think of the opportunity right now and the blessings right now. But even more so, let Christmas bolster your faith and hope in God for what is to come. Total alignment with him. What a thought. We have hope in Jesus as the hope of the world because through him people are aligned to God. In the Supreme Court building in Switzerland, there hangs a huge painting by Paul Robert. When he was asked to paint this tremendous mural on the stairway leading up to the Supreme Court offices, he expressed in painting what Samuel Rutherford had placed in magnificent words. The title of the painting is Justice Instructing the Judges. And in the foreground of the painting are all forms of litigation. The wife against her husband, or the husband against her wife. The architect against the builder. Other forms of dispute as well. And above them stands the Swiss judges. How will they judge the litigation? Robert's answer? Justice. But in many renditions of Lady Justice, including many of the renditions in our own country, Lady Justice looks differently than this painting. You see, in our context, Lady Justice is personified as a blindfolded woman with the scales of justice in one hand and a raised sword in the other. She is impartial to persons. Hence the blindfold. She weighs the facts of the case on the scale of justice. And her sword is at the ready to strike when necessary. But not so in Switzerland. 
Justice in this painting is personified as an imposing lady dressed in radiant white. In her right hand, she lifts the scales, signifying judicial fairness. Her head is surrounded by light, suggesting divine illumination. Twelve judges surround her, looking up to her for guidance. But in her left hand, she holds a sword. It's not vertical, ready to strike. Instead, it is pointing them toward their guidance. The sword is pointing to a Bible, open and accessible for the judges and the litigants to see alike. It's a beautiful piece of art that encapsulates a message central to Jesus in the courtroom. Throughout the Bible, God teaches true justice to judges, lawyers, and to all humanity. But more than that, justice comes when this word of God is made flesh and dwells among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son who comes from the Father. And through him, God aligns us to himself. That is justice. And so Merry Christmas, everyone. I hope that you have great hope in this Christmas season. Because God is doing something that you have a taste of but that you will experience fully because of the coming of his son. Jesus is the hope of the world because through him, people are aligned to God. Let's pray together. Father, we confess to you that we do not often see and even rarely feel the transcendent nature of your person and your plans. That we are, at times, short-sighted to the realities right in front of us that are real and profound and sometimes joyous and sometimes painful. But today we take a step back. We see from above your eternal purposes in aligning the world to yourself through your son and we can do nothing but give you thanks and praise. An experience of life and eternity aligned to you. This is our hope. This is our joy. And this is our celebration at Christmas. We worship you for it. Amen.